0: Greyhound to Trap 1. Greyhound to Trap 1. How do you read me? Over. Welcome to episode 49 of the Trap 1 podcast. I'm Mark McManus and today I'm joined by Jason McLaughlin. Welcome by Jason. Um,
1: hello. Uh, it's great to be back.
0: Uh, so a couple of weeks ago, you were at the LFCC. That was pretty cool. I
1: was indeed. Yeah, a hectic weekend down in London for a couple of days. Uh, went to LFCC for the Saturday and the Sunday.
0: Brilliant. Uh, so yeah, it seemed like just an amazing event. Eight doctors on one day and, and nine doctors over the weekend.
1: Yeah, they had. Uh, they really, really did pull all the stops out for it um tom baker was there for the friday afternoon um i presume probably because of his age he doesn't like do full days anymore yeah but i'm aware of it, that he signed i think from 12 till 5 and then they had the rest of the doctors over the weekend with last minute announcements on the sunday which was for peter davidson and then david tennant was announced saturday afternoon um, about three o'clock and they even announced it over the Tannoy system, yeah. you could hear a bit of fear everywhere when <laughs> people had heard the announcement. So uh, he and Peter then did the the Sunday, but then the rest of the doctors did the Saturday and the Sunday.
0: Fantastic. Cool. And you got to meet Peter Cavaldi?
1: I did indeed, yeah. Um, I was lucky enough for a couple of years back when he first got the role to uh, get his autograph on an official BBC postcard because... Somebody I worked with, their brother, um, actually worked uh, for the BBC as an electrician in BBC Wales, oh, um, but obviously never met him, and then obviously this opportunity came up, and it's it's kind of like, the big criticism I think at the moment from these kind of events is that um, some of the bigger stars don't do the British events. They always tend to go to the American events where there's more money mm. involved and stuff. So for them to actually get the likes of Peter Capaldi and Matt Smith and David Tennant, and then they got the exclusive of Christopher Eccleston, who's never done anything like this, yeah. previously, I think that was a bit of a quite a coup for them uh, this time round.
0: Yeah, it was uh, really nice to see. Uh, I mean, only going by the photos, that I saw kind of all over Twitter, obviously, all weekend. Um, Eccleston looked like he was really enjoying it.
1: He did. I mean, he, apparently, some stuff I've, I've read on forums and stuff, they said he was a bit apprehensive, but as, as the, obviously, the day went along and the weekend went along, he kind of, like, got more into it. Um, but Capaldi is an absolute natural. Yeah. Uh, he... Um, for the queue for the photos, um, where you have your photo taken with um, the star, he's an absolute natural with the kids. He was like, "Oh, do you want to be my companion?" And he was like, he would like, you know, get down on one knee uh, with them for the the photo. And uh, he commented on my t-shirt. I was wearing a, a Doctor Who relate t-shirt that said five Rounds Rapid" like, with bullet holes on it. So he said. I've not heard that phrase in quite a long time. uh, So that was quite nice. And then um, to meet him later in the uh, autograph queue, um, you could see that he was really taking his time with people because sometimes in these events, they can be very, very rushed. And it's a case of like, sign, hi, how are you doing? Next person, please. But Peter was really taking um, time out with people and having a conversation with them and uh, there was a young boy who was a couple in front of them he's with his dad and he did a real um like kind of like engaged with him um and then the guy who was in front of me um had a day of the doctor um poster you know from the cinema run oh yeah when it was shown in cinemas and he had it virtually signed by nearly everybody involved in the show um, to the point where there wasn't a lot of space on the poster itself for any more signatures. So Peter was kind of like looking, well, where do I sign? And then he came like, came up with an idea. And if you remember the poster, you've kind of got um, David Tennant and Matt Smith on side by side with John Hurt, um, yeah. smaller in between. Yeah. So there was a kind of like gap between David Tennant and Matt Smith's head and what Peter actually did is he actually drew his eyebrows from that clip in <laughs> the uh, amazingly and then put a little black box next to it which he coloured in and then signed Peter Capaldi, uh, Doctor, question, question mark in silver so it really stood out on the poster. And just put that kind of effort in, he's like, just quite amazing that, you know.
0: Yeah. Yeah, all the photos, he looked like he was having a great time and and really responding well to the fans.
1: Yeah, my girlfriend was really, really good to uh, just get that absolute, really brilliant photo that she got um, where I was telling him a story about um, when my son had first seen Paddington and he was only five at the time, so he was kind of like in that kind of thing where yeah. he doesn't like, know what's real and what's not real. And my son had said, well, what's Doctor Who doing in Paddington? And I, obviously, quick as a flash, because when you're a parent, you do this kind of thing. You go, oh, he's looking after Paddington. He's in disguise. He's, uh, he's you know, he's making sure Paddington's all right. So I told Peter that, and the smile and laugh that he kind of like gave at that story, um, my girlfriend got an absolute brilliant shot of his reaction, and obviously that's what I put up on uh, Twitter and Facebook.
0: That's really nice. I was going to ask you actually what you'd said because he's really laughing in that photo. It's a, it's a great picture. Yeah. yeah,
1: an absolute brilliant moment. In just like lucky to like just really capture it at that point.
0: Yeah. Um, he's a brilliant cartoonist as well. I've seen some of the. Um, I remember a while ago there was a video on was it the fan show or something like that when he was doing these kind of caricatures of the first four Doctors.
1: Yeah, well, he's a brilliant artist anyway, and I've I've obviously seen like when he's done stuff like sketches of Daleks on, like you know, photos for fans and stuff. Yeah. But when he actually was drawing this, his eyebrows—they were absolutely screen accurate, and obviously he's doing that from memory.
0: Yeah.
1: So that was just absolutely amazing. He didn't have to do that. He just decided, like, oh well, I know what I'll do on this to make it stand out, and so you can see my autograph amongst all these other autographs.
0: Brilliant. The other thing that was great to see was the, the various doctors meeting each other as well, uh, Eccleston meeting Capaldi and, and Matt Smith.
1: Yeah, the video footage of um, them bumping into each other in the, um, as one I think was going to one photo shoot and going back to their autograph like you, kind of yeah. like they just, happened to bump into each other, didn't they? And people caught it on video and took photos. And that was a really, really good moment because I think that's when, I think hopefully Christopher Eccleston can kind of like now really appreciate that, you know, just how much fans like him because of his contribution to
0: bringing the show back. Yeah, yeah, it's nice. It was good. Good to see that. I was kind of hoping we'd see a picture that they'd maybe assemble all the doctors together for one big group photo, but it doesn't seem like that happened. No, I know there were
1: various different like photo shoots available that you could obviously like purchase to like you know have your photo taken. There was a group photo shot with Capaldi, Smith, Stephen Moffat, who appeared on the Sunday. And David Bradley, who was there as well.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but I think obviously the, the logistics of it, and then people, you know, getting signed up at the last minute because obviously David Tennant was obviously must have been a last minute sign-in. They must have been desperately trying to get for him, and then suddenly he's available on the Sunday, so it's like, yeah, I'll do it. But then obviously you can't. Then you're limited with the space, and then you're limited with the photographers, and yeah. so I hope if he's. If they do another event and they're there for the weekend, then perhaps that's the photo opportunity that they could then
0: like put up. Yeah, not even uh, not even for the punters, really. If they just, just kind of got them together just for a, a shot of all the doctors. Oh um, yeah, yeah, because been... there was that shot, wasn't there, for the
1: two thousand and thirteen um, the, the, the big 50... BBC, um convention that they did, didn't they?
0: Yeah, I, I went to that one. The, um, the, the um, one at the Excel on the fiftieth. Um, oh right it was absolutely superb um, yeah and there's that really nice photo well there's kind of a couple of versions of it but there's one where sort of Tom Baker's in the foreground kind of looking at the camera while the others uh, they're on a kind of a bridge or something kind of waving down um, oh right yeah really really beautiful photo of them yeah
1: yeah I mean um, obviously talking about like the weekend as well kind of like then that, that that the Saturday was obviously when I met Capaldi and then on Sunday um Queued up to um, meet Matt Smith um, because my girlfriend had bought the package for him, so um, she'd had a photo taken with him. And apparently, you know, he's a lovely guy. But that was obviously a bit more rushed, and I think because potentially it depends. I think who's kind of like they're with, you know, with the showmaster's staff, whether they kind of like encourage them to speed through it a bit more, or you know, some actors do what they're told, and some actors say, no, I'm actually going to take a bit more time with people. But, I mean, don't get me wrong, Matt Smith was fantastic, he was friendly, you know, but it wasn't as, you know, take the time with the fans as much as Capaldi did. It was kind of like, hi, how are you doing? What's your name? Here's your signature. Great to see you next, kind of thing,
0: you know. What were the queues like? Was it quite long or...?
1: Oh, uh, some of the queues were absolutely ridiculous. Um, Essentially, how these events are kind of like going is they're kind of like gearing more to you buying the packages. Mm -hmm. So you buy the package that includes like the photo and the autograph. Um, Back when I started going to these things nearly like 20 years ago and stuff, it's kind of like it was you, you turned up, you queued up, and you got the autograph and that was it. But now it's kind of like, it's become obviously much more of a, uh, a business. Mm-hmm. And in some respects, some of the personal touches are taken out of it a bit. And it's a case of you, if you don't get there really, really quickly and early and you haven't been able to buy you know the expensive package that includes everything then you obviously you get a virtual ticket that has a number on it right and then you come back when they're getting to that number of autographs so in some instances instances you can be very very lucky and you can get a low ticket if that per- person's not particular like you know got a lot of interest or if that person's high interest, but what tends to happen is if you've got a ticket that says three hundred and forty-eight on it, sometimes that puts some people off and they'll never go back to the autograph queue because they think I've got no chance of getting that person. Right. So some queues, as they're managed, depending on who's managing the queue, the staff they'll say, "Yeah, it's all right. We're a bit quiet at the moment." Get in the queue, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Some queues are obviously a bit managed a bit more, um, you know, pedantically. As in, I'm sorry, we're only signing up to ticket number 150, so therefore, if you've got ticket 350, I'm, I'm not letting you in the queue. Um, I believe David Tennant signed up to about um, ticket 500 on the Sunday that he was there. But he got to that number about 5 o'clock, half past 5 on the evening and obviously it was closing at 6 o'clock. We had ticket number, God knows, I think 525 or something but we knew that we had to leave by 5 o'clock to get back to the hotel and then obviously get to the train station to come home Mm -hmm. to catch our train. So, But I believe... From what I've read online, Peter Capaldi was an absolute gent and stayed till about half past six, quarter to seven on both evenings because he said, "No, people still want my autograph, so I'm still staying." As much to the annoyance, I think, of some of the staff who were like, "No, we're shut now," Peter insisted on staying. To if somebody wanted their his autograph, he he said, "No, I'm staying. I'm signing." Fantastic. And he carried on signing longer than what he should have done. So, all credit to the man.
0: Brilliant. Yeah, that's uh, that's good. And especially like you say, when he doesn't do too many UK ones, wants to give everyone yep. the opportunity. Yeah. I mean, what you mean about how much they've changed? I the first convention I went to was 1996 um, in Glasgow, and I was lucky enough to meet John Pertwee. Um, it was just a oh of, really? Yeah, just a couple of months before he died. It was um, oh. Uh- and it was, yeah, such... I didn't go to one after that for years and years and years, but until the show came back, really. And, yeah, the difference... Um, I mean, I suppose one of the biggest differences is, in 1996, it was all men. Like, it was all blokes. There wasn't any sort of female fans there whatsoever. Yeah. Um, but it was that But, but that bit more relaxed. You know, it wasn't... Uh, you did queue for autographs, but the guests were kind of just milling around anyway. They, you know, they're kind of in the bar with you and, and whatnot. So it was... Yeah, it wasn't as, uh, I guess, you know, yeah, kind of regimented and stuff as it is now. Yeah,
1: like I say, obviously, it's become, like, quite a big business, isn't it? And, you know, when they get, like, the big stars that come over from the US, like, obviously, Sam Neill was signing at the weekend, um, David Duchovny was signed, in which case I was like, yes, because about five years ago, I managed to get Gillian Anderson at one of these events. Right. And then I saw the price that David Duchovny was charging and it was kind of like, yeah, that's a bit out of my price range. So, you know. um, But yeah, to to get these kind of like, you know, stars appearing and stuff, they probably do have to like, you make sure that it's a bit more regimented and there's a bit more kind of like um, distance from the fans when they're not the autograph moves, or you know doing the photos yeah. so it's a bit of a shame how it's changed but you know that I suppose that's the nature of the beast really
0: that's it yeah it's obviously it's way more popular now than uh, than it was in those days of course yeah but, uh, and there's a few events coming up as well I've, I've got a ticket to uh, the warp convention in Manchester next month um, and the big finish day in November in Derby and you think you were saying you're going to one in Wales
1: yeah, I've got tickets for the Wales Comic Con in December, which is at Wrexham, I believe. Um, they've got Colin Baker and Sylvester McCoy appearing at that one. Sylvester McCoy was obviously just him and Jodie Whitaker were the only doctors who didn't appear at LFCC. Obviously, Jodie's busy filming and stuff, and Sylvester, unfortunately, had to pull out due to uh, a health reason. But well, I believe he's better now because I think he's now appearing uh, on stage at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival um, this month. Um, but they've also got the likes of Val Kilmer and I think um, uh, Carl Urban and Ron Perlman. And unfortunately, John Barrowman was due to appear, but he's just uh, cancelled. So it's
0: a great lineup, though. Uh,
1: yeah, very good lineup, really and hopefully good. there might be a few more names announced uh, before then. Yeah. well the did line up for uh, VORP
0: isn't there next month in Manchester yeah that's um, it's got Peter Davison, Colin Baker Sylvester McCoy um, Nicola Bryant who I've never seen at a convention um, I've probably met most of the, the companions
1: oh uh, I she is lovely ones, uh, I, I met her for the first time last year at LFCC and she was absolutely wonderful, she was so like lovely And so, like, humble. She was like, I didn't know if I wanted to do this this year because I didn't think anybody would come and, you know, up to me or want me off scrap. And I was kind of like, are you kidding? (laughs) You, (laughs) You were parrying Doctor Who. I absolutely, like, you know, you were brilliant. And she was, oh, thank you. And she came round. She actually got out of a chair, came round and gave me a hug. of that. And I just thought that was really, really nice.
0: Yeah. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, because I've got uh, probably most of the companions still with us have uh, I've met at different conventions, kind of got a few autographs and things. Yeah, um, but yeah, not um, probably Nicola Bryant and Lala Ward. Probably the the two that I haven't met.
1: I think Lala Ward's quite nice as well. I I, I met her a few years back. Um, she's lovely. Um, have you met Katie
0: Manning? Yes. Yeah, the yeah. Dimensions convention in Newcastle uh, a few years ago. I saw her there. Yeah, she's she's amazing, isn't she?
1: She is, and she 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 virtually just carries on talking to you, doesn't yeah. she? As somebody else like butts in and says,
0: "Excuse me." Yeah, I, it was quite nice actually. I saw her at the the fiftieth um, uh, convention as well at um, at Excel, and I, I got an autograph and, and a photo, and I, I sort of tweeted it a couple of days later. And so I was lucky enough to meet Katie Manning, and she tweeted back saying, "No, I was lucky enough to meet you." <laughs>
1: Oh, that's lovely.
0: Yeah, just just really nice. She's so genuine and warm, isn't she? And just on stage as well, just absolutely fantastic. Just kind of uh, incredibly entertaining.
1: Yeah, I, um, my son obviously. Uh, well, I obviously didn't plan this, but he shares the birth his birthday with John Pertwee. Right, uh, the seventh of July. So every um, obviously his birthday, I always put something on Twitter about John Pertwee sharing his birthday with my son, and I tagged her in it this year, and she actually, I think she replied back and she retweeted it as well, which was really, really nice.
0: Ah, nice. Yeah, it's, she's a really great presence on Twitter as well, isn't she? She's really uh, engaged with the fans. and
1: Yeah, she does. Nice.
0: Yeah, and uh, Maureen O'Brien I met as well at the big finish day. She, she's one that she hardly seems to do any. Oh right, okay. Um, And um, she was talking there about how kind of dubious she was when she first did them, and and kind of uh, a bit intimidated that she Uh she she nearly sort of when she saw the cues, she nearly turned around and went away again. Uh, But uh, yeah, she was lovely as well. Yeah, some some great stories. So um, we're also going to talk about the season twelve Blu-ray box set. Yes. Which uh, you got as a Father's Day present, I think you said. Indeed, yes. I've been a, a fool with a,
1: a couple with so, of weeks later than Father's Day, because it did get put back a couple of weeks,
0: didn't it? Yeah. I, I've been an absolute fool with this. I didn't realize it was a limited edition, so I thought, I've got all the time in the world to get this. Maybe I'll get it for Christmas. And then I saw somebody tweet the other day that Amazon Amazon had sold out, and HMV had sold out, and I thought, uh-oh, so I dashed down to HMV and Carlisle they didn't have any, you have got some of my family to check their local stores, there, there aren't any left, so, uh, and then through through my fingers sort of thing, I had a look at eBay, and, uh, yeah, needless to say, they're already carrying a hefty price tag on eBay.
1: Yeah, and one of my searches that I have set on for my Amazon account, it's set for, like, Doctor Who, Blu-rays, and Steelbooks, and uh, it did come up of what it's currently listed at on um, Amazon. And I think some ponter is trying to flog the box set for two hundred and forty-five pounds at the moment. <laughs> so good luck to him. Yeah, you there think... might be a fan out there who decides they want it that desperately.
0: Yeah, even more so than eBay, you get some some uh, some chances on there, don't you?
1: You do indeed. <laughs> but it an absolute brilliant, wonderful, beautiful piece of packaging. It's it's probably the best blu-ray box set packaging i've seen since the um star wars trilogy not not the trilogy but the first uh, six films were released uh on blu-ray for the first time right it's got a very very kind of like similar um feel to it and then you open it up and the design by lee uh Binding, who's done uh, quite a few of the dvd covers mm. it's amazing um and it's got a twenty-four-page booklet that comes with it, which goes into detail of the production and the audience reaction and the reception of of each story, as well as like listing all the extras. Um, and then each disc has got individual, like you know, pictures covers to it. It is just, it is a
0: work of art. It sounds great because I think at the moment there's a lot of you see a lot of negativity about the the quality of the merchandise. And there's you know not a lot of, of care taken with it, but this is just been universal acclaim for this one, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, and I, when it was obviously announced and before the packaging was kind of like finalised, there was a quite a bit of negativity I saw about the fact that it has the new um, logo on it. You know yeah. that's going to the Jodie Whitaker series. Um, but obviously there's a change in branding and there's a change in decision with the uh, BBC products and they've decided to get rid of the old Pertwee McGann logo that was used for essentially classic era show. And I believe Big Finisher now using the Whitaker logo.
0: Yeah, it's pretty universal well, I,
1: it? I don't mind it. I think it's it looks really, really good.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think it makes sense to tie it all together, doesn't it? Because there's always a bit of a divide between, like you say, that that McGann style one, which was used on everything from, uh, like the kind of the BBC Eighth Doctor books onwards, um, and then the new series of, of each had like a slightly different logo. It makes sense yeah. to tie it all together, I think. It does. It does. Yeah, no, I don't mind it. I know, there's, um... but then there's there's a contingent of fans that just complain about everything new, don't they? Whether it's uh... <laughs> Just, just everything that comes out. There's, uh, there's yeah. I try
1: not to be one of those. I'll I'll only complain about certain things. But yeah, yeah, suppose the worry with some fans is probably if this is going to be a continuous thing with, and they aim to release all of the original 26 seasons of the classic run on Blu-ray, fully restored. That they do kind of like stick to the coherent same packaging because i know even with the dvd range you know some of the spines change some of them like different like slightly different logos things placed in different things and you know when you kind of like look at your shelf there's some fans i'm not that ocd about that kind of thing but i know there's a lot of doctor who fans are like it doesn't match
0: yeah yeah there's uh it's yeah it is more aesthetically pleasing isn't it if it all kind of lines up and uh and matches, but but most of it doesn't, does it? Because the the ranges go on for so long. Exactly, you know, Personnel yeah. changes, and people want to put their own stamp on stuff. I think probably the worst one, and it's an old one, is the which which one of the annuals is it? Like 1972 or 1973? Um, and it's like an inch bigger, um, like kind of in width and height than than all the other annuals. So uh, you have got them lined up on your shelf, and there's just one one outlier that's huge. In the middle, it's. Uh, <laughs> I,
1: I've got those whittled away somewhere, so I'd have to yeah. dig them out to look at them. But I think you are exactly right with that one.
0: That one, even when I was a kid, bugged me. Yeah, I was like, why did they do that? Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and that's where it all starts when you're a kid. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's it. What what the sort of special features like that came with it, it seemed like quite a good good selection.
1: Well, luckily. Um, Every special feature that was on the original um, DVD releases mm-hmm. has been ported over onto the Blu-ray box set.
0: Ah, that's good. So you can actually and, replace your DVDs with it. Then it's not a case of because uh, I know, like the Blu-ray for Spearhead from Space, it was designed sort of as a companion, wasn't it? It didn't have the same the same features on it.
1: Yeah, very true. Um, there are a couple of things that are missing, which I'm not quite sure which are, but they have. Like they already like kind of like said on forums and stuff that the reason why it's missing because it wasn't relevant to season 12. So it's not that they've taken it off deliberately, it's that they'll put it on a more appropriate box set release. Right. So, But everything is virtually there. Um, there's a couple of firsts that we've never had before. The uh, Tom Baker years, which was the 1991 VHS uh, double tape yeah. release where Tom Baker sat on a chair and watched a TV and watched clips of all his stories in order and
0: couldn't remember kind of anything
1: like yeah. reminiscing because he couldn't remember most of it yeah.
0: uh,
1: that's on the um, one of the discs for the very first time so mm-hmm. that's quite fun to watch don't ever play the Tom Baker years drinking game though because every time he says let's have a look at another one by about halfway through season thirteen, you'll be yeah. on the floor.
0: <laughs> yeah, I had that um, that VHS set. Um, I remember thinking at the time, why can he not remember any of this stuff? Yeah, yeah, it's probably because he was in the pub most of the yeah. time. <laughs> um, there's the Genesis of the Daleks, um,
1: 1975 Christmas Omnibus, which is ironically probably one of the very first story that I remember as a kid. Um, and I watched that actually the, uh, the other day and it's completely unrestored. Right. So it, as it was broadcast and boy, can you tell <laughs> for those people who are on the forums and stuff and kind of like saying, oh, well, what's the point in releasing essentially 1970s TV on Blu-ray because the resolution's not going to be, um, that much better. Don't kind of like understand how much um, compression you get on DVDs, and also don't really probably appreciate how much work the restoration team do into um, restoring this. And when you w- watch the TV version of Genesis of the Daleks, you really can tell the difference, and it just shows how much work and effort they put into restoring the pictures on these shows.
0: Brilliant. I, I love Genesis of Daleks. It's Daleks. Uh,
1: There's um, also brand new CGI um, effects for Revenge of the Sideman, which we never got on the first release, ah, the right. DVD release.
0: Cool. Yeah, because they did that sort of later on in the range, isn't it? When they started doing those bits and pieces with um, the Ark in Space and uh, yeah. the, uh, yeah. the Daleks and stuff. <laughs>
1: one thing that always bothered me when they did the Ark in space came out first and they did brand new cdi effects for the the Ark and you know the spaceships and stuff and then later on when they released revenge of the sideman it was just like here's the bog standard model effects from 1975 and it was a bit like well where the if you're going to do it for one that's yeah. set at the same like you know space station why not do it for the other so they finally corrected that one
0: yeah because you'd think they'd have those models saved so it wouldn't even they wouldn't even have the expense of kind of rendering them for the first time would they
1: no no um there's um a new feature that's on here which is called behind the sofa and they're about 30 minutes 40 minutes long on for each story and essentially, the only way I can describe it is that it's like Gogglebox book for Doctor Who.
0: All right, cool.
1: So what you've got is interspersed with clips. You've got um, on one sofa, Tom Baker, um, Sadie Miller, Elizabeth Sladen's daughter, yeah. Philip Hinchcliffe um, commenting on the um, particular story. And then on another sofa, so, you know, the clips are interspersed with each other. Yeah. You've got Louise Jameson, Janet Fielding, and Sarah Sutton who also comment on the stories. Oh, cool. And at first I thought, oh, that doesn't sound too good. I don't like the sound of that. But okay. essentially, it's kind of like an update of the Tom Baker years. And it's, you know, it's condensed. It's not obviously for the full story. They kind of like just, you know, cut it down a little. But, you know, they're nice little features to watch and it's exactly like watching an edition of Gogglebox but with Doctor Who stars watching their own show.
0: Yeah. ah, oh, that sounds cool.
1: And the final um, kind of like big special feature that's new um, compared to all the other um, DVD um, previous extras is a hour-long um, conversation with Tom Baker, which is... Um, Hosted by uh, Matthew sweet right and that is absolutely wonderful it it doesn't break any new ground um there's not any new revelations about it but it is just wonderful to see Tom Baker um talk like he does
0: for uh, i think about sixty five minutes brilliant yeah he's he's amazing saying before about the big finish day I went to he was on stage for about an hour there. And just had the audience just like crying with laughter. Um, the way he's, he's kind of the way he can tell a story and hold their attention just amazing.
1: Well, I think he's probably one of the last great eccentrics of the uh, you know our country, isn't he? Yeah. Um, um Just like you say, he 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 is a natural born storyteller, and you know he can hold an audience in the palm of his of his hand.
0: Yeah. The, um, that one that Big Finish brought out when Nick Briggs interviewed him is it uh, Tom Baker at 80 I think and if you've heard oh, that, that I never got that that's um, really good as well was it yeah it's um, a really long in-depth interview it's fantastic yeah cool and uh, and five great stories as well
1: yeah um, it is probably you can see why they've decided to launch the blu-ray complete seasons range uh, with this season because it's kind of like got everything that you want. You've got, you know, arguably probably the most popular Doctor, yeah. um, certainly out of the classic run anyway. Mm-hmm. You've got, um, you know, you've got Daleks, you've got Cybermen, you've got Sontarans, you've got, you know, probably one of the best companions in Sarah Jane Smith with Elizabeth Sladen. You know, it's the kind of like a season that does absolutely have it
0: all. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's def- definitely one I, I go back to a lot. Um, Robot, even the the first story you've got Tom Baker just kind of hits the ground running, doesn't he? He's got the character immediately.
1: Uh, yeah, um, I'd probably say like out of all the actors who've probably been in the role, I'd say. In my personal opinion, there's only three who've literally been the Doctor from the moment they uttered, you know, their first lines, and I think that's Tom Baker, David Tennant, and Matt Smith. I think the others, for me, have always taken either an episode or two to grow into the role, and some have actually taken like a fair few episodes into a season mm. before you finally it's finally clicked with you and gone, that's the Doctor. Um, but yeah Tom Baker just hits the ground absolutely running from the moment he kind of like you know sits up in, in the first few minutes of Robot
0: yeah uh, and I think um, Harry Sullivan as well so good in that in that season um, Ian Martyr in that character obviously they, they cast him originally because they thought they might go for an older doctor so they wanted somebody who could a bit like Ian Chesterton to do a bit of the action sort of thing um, yeah that's right. it's a shame
1: bare bit of the action but yeah, yeah Ian Marta is. you just realise when you're watching back these stories just how good he was
0: yeah a brilliant character and just the way he played off Sarah Jane the Doctor just it's such a great dynamic it's it's a real shame he didn't carry on past Terror of the Zygons
1: it is yeah and obviously it's such a shame you know um yeah he contributes to the show with uh, quite a few target novelisations didn't he like later on yeah in the le- and early 80s but it, it is quite a tragic thing that he died at such an early age I think he was 42 when he passed away yeah uh, which is absolutely no age you know he, he could have carried on and I know um, I think Tom Baker mentions that obviously in the new uh, interview that's on uh, one of the discs he mentions that they wrote the movie together yeah, and he said that oh, if Ian Martin was still with us today, he would absolutely love it. And he said he probably would have written for the new series, and I bet he would have been, you know, writing for Big Finish. And it's just kind of like that potential of like Ian Martin was great at novelising like existing stories, and it's just such a shame that we never got him to come up with his own Doctor Who
0: story. Yeah, I suppose the closest we got was Harry Sullivan's War, wasn't it, the spin-off one that he did. Yeah, yeah. Sure, uh, it's a bit, bit like the Thirty Nine Steps or something like that. It's, I really enjoy it. It's a good book, that. Yeah, that was one
1: of the uh, very first spin-offs, wasn't
0: it? Yeah, yeah, but yeah, shame as well. Before the kind of, um, I guess the the kind of the fan side of things had really um, grown, so there isn't a lot of footage of him or anything like that. You know, there's not that kind of interviews and uh, it's you know a bit like. The early doctors in that way, isn't it? You you don't have a lot of footage of them, not in character. Yeah,
1: that's true. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, I I think there are a few grainy early video
0: recordings, and I think uh, real time pictures. Who used to do the Myth Maker interviews? Oh yeah,
1: I think he did one of those, which is like a fifty minute long um, interview, and that was done, I think, shortly before he died. But I think besides that, there's there's not a lot of you know him as footage of himself
0: like mm. a- around there yeah it's, uh, it's a shame he's particularly great in robot. I love his uh, his undercover kind of James Bond type stuff
1: well I, mm. it's funny enough because uh, you mentioned that because I did see on uh, Twitter um, a couple of weeks back I think obviously when people were starting to watch stories as they got the, the new box set And somebody put up a picture of him, you know, when he goes in disguise with the bowler hat and everything.
0: Yeah.
1: And somebody had done a comparison pic of uh, Patrick McNee as John Steed from the Avengers. And it was, it's remarkable just how much they actually did look like each other when Ian Marta's got um, that bowler hat on.
0: Yeah, I'd never thought but, about that before, but now you mention it, yeah, they've got the same kind of face structure, haven't they?
1: very much, and it's kind of like a bit spooky. Somebody could have said like, oh, we've only, you know, we could have had Ian Marta as a young John Steed yeah. <laughs> in like a prequel series and stuff. It's like, wow.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, it's uh, all, all kind of stuff like that. They say he's writing, but also the um, the performances as well. If he... Uh, uh, if he hadn't died so young.
1: Yeah, I mean, he got the bumbling, like, companion route, routine to an absolute, like, T. He, he really was perfectly cast in that role.
0: Yeah, he's so urbane, isn't he, in the, these kind of really weird circumstances. Uh He's, he's yeah, proper uh, kind of English reserve and all that kind of stuff. He's great. Yeah. I think the there's a thing, yeah, what, what last time I watched Robot that um I thought was quite funny because all you hear on the uh the news and stuff at the moment, you know, the kind of the Trump supporters and the Brexiteers, they're always talking about the elites, aren't they? About how you know we need to stand up to the elites and all this kind of stuff. Um and in this story you've got the, the scientific reform society who are calling themselves the elites and want to take over.
1: Yeah. Yeah, with the it the whole like think tank kind of thing. It's uh that aspect of the, the the story always I don't know it's never quite run quite true for me it wasn't quite convincing enough and it is obviously when you watch this as a complete season you do kind of see um, and I don't know whether viewers back in the day even noticed this but obviously Robot was done as part of season 11's production block wasn't it yeah and then, so it's the only one that was like um, kind of like done with the old Barry Letts, Terence Dix regime. And then, obviously, you've got the really quite different um, atmosphere and the kind of like the kind of like slightly different take, more adult take on the show
0: with Hinchcliffe and Holmes. Yeah, and it's only when you can like watch them
1: quickly in succession that you kind of like notice that there is quite a huge stylistic change I mean, you know, Robot as fun as an adventure it is, I don't think it'll ever be um, an absolute classic no um, but it does come across as quite um, very children's drama at the, of the time and then you've got that complete contrast with the, the remaining f- four serials in the season
0: Yeah, especially you've got um, the in Space immediately after it
1: Yeah, yeah of some... course which, you know, that first episode just completely is the three regulars wandering around a space station um, in- investigating and there's no other cast and it's quite a different take on the on the show, and you've got Tom Baker's obviously iconic, um, indomitable yeah, human yeah.
0: speech, haven't you? Yeah, really influential that, isn't it? It's, I think Russell T. Davis cited it as his favourite story, uh, and that theme of the kind of human spirit and, and the, the the kind of the will of humans to survive and to conquer anything, that's a big theme of his era as well. Yeah. And some really dark stuff in there, The the whole thing. It's like it's basically like kind of alien, isn't it? Um, the stuff about the you know the alien insects and kind of implanting in people and that kind of thing, and then the body horror of them morphing into the Wirren. Yeah, it is. Uh, like you say, it's a lot darker, more adult.
1: Yeah, which I probably do. back in its day, like would um, probably quite shock some viewers, and um, obviously today everybody kind of like points out the bubble wrap and stuff, and yeah. it's pointed out in the behind the sofa like um, featurette on that particular story. I think Janet Fielding has a bit of a giggle yeah. at the old bubble wrap there. But you know, Louise Jameson's quick to jump in and say, well actually, you know, nobody had heard of bubble wrap at that time and, you know, even if you think about it in that day, that does actually look quite grotesque when he's he's got his hand and it's all deformed and green and everything and that's, like you say, that body horror is probably something that the show really hadn't done previously.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there's not much stuff like that before, is there? Um, no. And this is when they sort of... It's around this time, isn't it? Yeah, it is it Robert Holmes or Philip Pinchcliffe who said kids shouldn't be watching it? It's it's for the intelligent 14-year-old kind of thing. It's, uh, I can't remember which one of them said it now.
1: I think that um, quote was... Um, Robert Holmes and I think it was done for a it was a newspaper interview I think he did I think it was around about the time of season 13 when the show started to get more complaints about it certainly Mm. from Mary Whitehouse Yeah. and Robert Holmes I think he's pictured um, in a phone box surrounded by a Dalek a Cyberman and a Wirren I think in the photograph for the newspaper article and yeah he said he said we don't write for children yeah, we go for the intelligent fourteen-year-old.
0: You couldn't say that now, could you? You couldn't say intelligent fourteen-year-old no. now. It's uh, <laughs> TV's geared up for uh, with the kind of Love Island and Big Brother and Eat Well for Less. It's all very much sort
1: of like most fourteen-year-olds are probably either on their uh, iPads or like watching like you know things on YouTube. They're probably not interested yeah. in
0: what's the <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. But it's TV now. It celebrates kind of thick people, doesn't it? It's there. Uh, kind of moved away from uh, anything like that, I think. A lot of it, anyway. Don't,
1: don't get me started, I'll go off on a ramp.
0: This is what my wife complains about when I... Uh, um, she watches this Eat Well for Less and it just does my head in every time.
1: Oh, well, you know, it's like does... people at work say, oh, you watching been Love Island? Or yeah. just, like give them a complete blank stare and go, seriously? Yeah. <laughs> Do you not know <laughs> me?
0: <laughs> yeah, a lot of people at my work watch it as well. It's just... Yeah, it's it's just numpties, it's just absolute fools, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it wouldn't be like that under the SRS, would it?
1: It wouldn't, no. Um. And as, as much as we obviously like, you know, probably Robot is the fun, frolicky adventure, and it's not one that I would ever, I'd go back to a lot. Um, I still absolutely love the K1 Robot design.
0: Yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it? Something that stupidly only occurred to me last time I watched it, does the K stand for Kettlewell? I believe so, yeah. Because it never says That's it, does I... it? Oh. Yeah, they never say it in the episode, and I was just kind of watching it thinking, why is it called the K-1? And then I thought, oh yeah, of course, cause it's probably Kettlewell, isn't it?
1: Yeah, because he built it. But I mean, I remember back in, the, obviously when I was a youngster, and they did the Dennis Fisher range of um, Doctor Who toys. Yeah. So he had the, the Tom Baker like kind of like Action Man style figure and he had, came with a TARDIS and they had a the talking Dalek. And I had those, and I, but I remember asking several Christmases on the run and I don't know whether it was a rare figure or not, mm-hmm. asking for the giant robot because I loved that design so much and then never got it. So um, when Character Options finally did the classic range of figures, And they um, did the first range, um, which came with parts of the giant bot for you to build. Uh, I was just like, oh, that's brilliant. And, you know, I lovingly, like, bought the full wave direct from Character Options because I thought, I'm not risking, like, missing (laughs) a a leg or an arm, you know, if I can't get the figures in, like, Toys R Us or Tesco or something. And then... um, putting it together, and it takes pride of place in, like, you know, my Doctor Who figure display.
0: It's a, it's a great design, isn't it? It's kind of, like, kind of crazy and disco and everything, but it just just looks amazing.
1: It does, and obviously the costume still exists to this day because it was in the Doctor Who experience,
0: wasn't it? Yeah, beautifully restored, wasn't it? And uh, I remember the, the first time I went to the, the Doctor Who experience, which I think was... Um, I can't remember what yeah, that time. but it was that really kind of stood out for me because um, it was from my childhood and everything. Not not kind of the first time it was on or anything, but but watching Robot on VHS, um, yeah, it was yeah. I Got a real chill seeing that. Just looked fantastic, kind of gleaming and and still looked brand new because it'd been restored. Yeah, it's funny how the um, it's it's know become known as the giant robot, isn't it as well? Because that isn't in the episode. It's the name of Terence Dixie's novelization.
1: Yeah, but I think everyone just calls it the giant robot now, doesn't they? Instead of calling it Robot, which is obviously the title of the story, but then if you said, oh, the robot from Doctor Who, a lot of people are going to go, well, which one? There's lots of robots in Doctor
0: Who. That's It's such a a more evocative name, though, isn't it? The giant robot. It's great. Yeah. Yeah, Robot's a bit of a kind of a naff title, really, isn't it?
1: It is, it's yeah, but I the suppose the giant robot might have been a little bit of a naff title.
0: Yeah, that's true. Uh, so yes, yeah, so after after the arc in Space, uh, we've got the Santaran experiment. We
1: have, which is a, a little um, kind of like two parter thing, which is loosely connected to the arc in Space, and. Um, It shows Hinchcliffe's new approach to the show because obviously what Per Week era is full of is a lot of six-parters and they go on for a bit too long, some of them, don't they? Um, But what Hinchcliffe kind of decided is like, well, why don't we take the resources of a six-part budget and split it into two stories and do the location stuff for two episodes and then do the Studio stuff for four episodes, and it was an approach that he used quite a few times.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it works really well. It's, it uh, does, yeah. It's, it's quite a slight story, but there's still there's still some great moments, isn't there? And uh, and again, that kind of the, the cruelty of the experiments that uh, Steyer is conducting on the humans—it's that that harder edge, isn't it? That like say Hinchcliffe and Holmes brought to it.
1: Yeah, which at times are actually quite a bit barbaric aren't they when you you're actually are watching it back and thinking why this went out at Saturday tea time yeah back mm-hmm. in the day but it's interesting because obviously this story and Robot are um, probably the, the first two stories in the the run of Classic Doctor Who that weren't didn't have their location footage um, done on film yeah um, they were filmed with video outside broadcast video cameras, um, and I think even though they've chosen season twelve as a box set, it's probably the box, the season that's probably got the least amount of actual filmed footage in it.
0: Yeah, and it's the film stuff that, that they can um, that looks better, isn't it? When they, they upgrade it,
1: exactly. I mean, um, if you've seen the anything like the Castrovalva or. Um, some of the Peter Davidson um, um, DVDs, where they've actually still got the original film cans, and they've actually properly restored them. When stuff like season nineteen comes out on Blu-ray, that is going to just going to look absolutely astounding. Yeah. So it's a bit of a shame that this season only has a bit of film footage in Genesis of the Daleks, and then you've got all the Wookiee Hole stuff in. Um, Revenge of the Cybermen. It's it's a shame that there's not more film footage on to really show off how much better um, film looks when it's restored on in high definition.
0: Yeah, I, I imagine the uh, the Cybermen in Wookiee Hall do look great because I think they look great in that environment anyway on the DVD. Um, there's there's something about them in that in that kind of lighting and stuff that uh, yeah I always think they look fantastic. Even they're not kind of the best Cyberman design, but in in that environment I always think they look fantastic.
1: Yeah, and the shot really uh, atmospherically um, mm. in those scenes, aren't they? Yeah, because it's still quite dark, it's still quite foreboding. You know, there's not they're not overlit at all, and so yeah, those scenes really do look. Um, really good on Blu-ray
0: yeah it came out with um, Silver Nemesis didn't it in a box set when it came out on DVD yeah it
1: did yeah um, um, yeah and I think they can't put that together because it's like these are the two least kind of like yeah. <laughs> Diverman stories of, of everybody's
0: yeah I, I, I like Silver Nemesis uh, but it's because it's from the first season I ever saw so I've got it's just kind of a nostalgic thing
1: well it's interesting something that's just um, come up on one of the forums Um, Steve Roberts from the restoration team kind of like said that the reason why Silver Nemesis didn't get a proper DVD release with its extended VHS version right because um, that those kind of like um, the copy of the edit that was released on VHS he said we couldn't find it and we didn't have the budget to reinstate all that footage now a couple of weeks back apparently he said on a forum that we've actually now found the master tape of the VHS extended edit and he said that when we get round to doing season 25 he says that will be included finally
0: oh, brilliant. Uh, the uh, complete boxer because there was there was talk of a 30th anniversary um, silver nemesis DVD coming out wasn't there then, yeah um, and
1: I think that's where that comes from uh, yeah. because the um, c25 apparently has already been released completely in uh, Germany where they've been releasing the complete box sets for some time but just using the DVD masters and no extra um, footage or brand new extras with them and apparently the DVD company in Germany wanted the VHS edit on there so they actually themselves made their own version and compared it to the VHS and that's the one that they released back in Germany um, so it's kind of come from that, because somebody saw an Amazon listing of Silver Nemesis and said, oh, is that now coming out? And apparently it's uh, it's not officially coming out. It's He said somebody's jumped the gun, but we have found the original master tape of the VHS edit, so it will come out at some point, but it's not going to come out on DVD later in the year.
0: Do you think we'll get that... Documentary that came out on the VHS when it comes out in season 25?
1: Um, I think that's probably one of the things we might not get because, um, again, somebody asked him the question and he said, Well, there's two things that kind of like stop it from coming out. One, it was made for a PBS TV station in New Jersey that apparently doesn't exist anymore. Right. So nobody actually knows who owns the rights to the documentary. And also, it has extensive use of the song Doctor in the TARDIS, which was obviously a big hit back in, um, was it? 88
0: or something, was it? Somewhere in 88 or 89. Uh,
1: That was obviously has samples, um, a song from Gary Glitter, uh, and was by the guys who became the KLF. And apparently, the KLF have deleted their whole back catalogue, it's not available they don't release the songs again, and they said that is going to be the biggest op- obstacle of that documentary ever getting released. He said, we could probably negotiate with some American rights holder who will be able to like say, yeah, we own the rights to it, he said, but with regards to the music that's featured on it, it's probably going to be an absolute no-no.
0: Ah, right. I hadn't even thought about that you think they could um, change the music, though, because didn't they do that with Revelation of the Daleks, that some of the, the songs that the DJ plays they couldn't get the rights for, so they swapped?
1: Yeah, because I think on the original so. broadcast there's a Jimi Hendrix track, isn't there, which um, I yeah. think is fire, and I think that wasn't granted um, for its uh, video release and they had to substitute it. I'm not sure if it then they were able to get it for the DVD release, but... Um, yeah,
0: uh, they had to change some of the music on that. So, uh, where are we up to? We're up to um, Revenge of the Cybermen.
1: Well, we skipped to the absolute classic of oh, the Oh, gosh, uh,
0: yeah. Sorry, I was thinking there was, there's something wrong there. Yeah, we've, uh, we've that's missed our genesis, out, of the Dalek. The genesis of the Dalek. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, Genesis of the Dalek.
0: Yeah, uh, that's the highlight of the season, isn't it? It's brilliant.
1: Yeah, um, still to this day. Um, I will probably say if I was ever going to be standing on a desert island and somebody gave me the choice of you have one Doctor Who story to have um, for me it would be Genesis of the Daleks it just um, probably because it's my earliest memory of the show um,
0: and it's just such a brilliant story yeah it's, uh, it's funny, I, when I was younger, I had the, um, the, somebody copied the tape for me. I don't know if they copied it off the LP or whatever, but I had the, uh, you know, the kind of audio but it's like half audio book, half uh, audio from the episode. Yeah. I listened yeah. to that a ton of times when I was younger. Um, so that's kind of the, the sort of the default version of it for me. So whenever I watch it, it always feels really long because uh, I'm used to having it in about sort of, 60 minutes
1: yeah yeah.
0: But, uh, well it's interesting
1: because I think that LP stroke tape version which again I, I had back uh, I had it I think on tape um, I remember it buying it at the Blackpool Doctor Who exhibition probably in the late 70s or early 80s yeah and, and insisting that it was played in the car on the way up. <laughs> um, well, I think that is the that takes its source material from the 90-minute omnibus that's on this box set release. Right. Because that story doesn't end with the Doctor, Sarah, and Harry spinning in time with the timing going back to the space station. It ends with the Daleks making that iconic speech that they will grow stronger and when the time is right, they will take their rightful place yeah. as the supreme beings in the universe. And for me, that's the default ending of that story. That That's where that story should have really ended, because that's
0: the best ultimate ending for a Dalek story you could ever have. Yeah. Yeah, I always think of that as the ending as well. I think that, I think the tape's the same, isn't it? Same as the...
1: Uh... It is, yeah. It does end there, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I've got that on on CD now as well. Still, sometimes stick it on in the car for my commute. That's great. Yeah, but I think it does show just
1: how good a story it is, and that you could that you can take the core idea of it, and you can have it either in six episodes, or as a ninety-minute version, or as a version that's sixty minutes. Then, but you you. There's still that core idea of the Doctor going back in time to change the creation of the Daleks because, you know, the Time Lords see that, you know, the Daleks are going to basically take over the universe. And it's like Russell T. Davis' retcon that he said that that is the first um, act in the Time War.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's seems like an extrapolation of that idea, isn't it, about sort of using time as a weapon to... Uh, to defeat their enemies. Yeah, it's it's a brilliant idea. And the performances, um, sort of uh, Michael Wisher and Peter Miles, isn't it, that's neither. Yeah. Those two are brilliant.
1: You you cannot fault them. And as much as I love, like, um, Terry Malloy, mm-hmm. who was the, his dad, Ross, and Julian Beach, who did Dad Ross for the new series, um, Michael Wisher is, like, kind of, like, he's
0: just the... The
1: original and
0: the best. Yeah, yeah, absolutely superb. Because he doesn't scream all the time like the later ones have a bit of a tendency to, don't they?
1: Yeah, certainly Terry Molloy (laughs) does. Yeah,
0: he's uh, there's there's a quiet menace to him. Uh,
1: Yeah, I think there's there's a particular scene, isn't it, where he's waiting for the scientists to vote on whether they'll stop the experiments with the the Daleks, and he's just quietly waiting there. And I like the camera just kind of like focuses in on his hand, and it's just kind of like tapping on the console of his chair.
0: Yeah,
1: slowly, and it's just that little character you note. Know, whether that was in the original script or that's something that Michael Wisher came up with of somebody who's just coldly calculating and waiting for the right moment to strike. That's a brilliant character moment.
0: Yeah. You it's a really famous anecdote, isn't it, from Tom Baker as well, about how Michael Wisher, in rehearsals, had a paper bag over his head. Uh, Yeah. So he wasn't kind of, I guess, relying too much on his his facial expressions and things. But he was um, uh, kind of a chain smoker as well, so there was a hole in the top of the bag for the smoke (laughs) to come out. (laughs) Yeah, I did like that story. Yeah. It's... uh yeah it's kind of um it just set the template as well didn't it I suppose for the rest of the classic series of of having the Daleks and Davros
1: it did yeah unfortunately but obviously the the good thing that kind of like the new series did is to kind of like prove that you can still do a good Dalek story you don't have to have Davros with it and I think that's kind of like the rut that the Classic series got into like whenever they brought the Daleks back, it's like we have to have Davros as well.
0: Yeah. yeah. So it's kind
1: of like a victim of its own success, really. That character and just how good um, he was and how popular he was ingrained in, like you know, the memory of the general public.
0: Yeah, yeah, he very, very much is, isn't he? There's, uh, there's there's something about Davros that kind of sticks in people's minds, even if. You know, the kind of, uh, well, the, the casual viewer as Doctor uh, Who fans worry about all the time. He's, uh, he's iconic, yeah. And I
1: know there's a lot of speculation that, that obviously when Terry Nation had it, kind of like he got this kind of like clause, hadn't he, that whenever um, a Dalek story needed to be written, um, he was offered first refusal, wasn't he? Yeah. And there's that famous story, isn't there, when um, he kind of like, wrote the story outline for the Dalek story he was presenting and Barry Letson Townsdick said you've sold us this story three times already
0: (laughs) we're not having it do something more original Yeah.
1: said well why don't you show us the genesis of the Daleks and obviously it just shows that by forcing a writer out of his comfort zone because I don't think anybody will argue that planet of the Daleks and Death of the Daleks are absolute classics. They're fun romps, but they're virtual retreads of previous Terry Nation Dalek stories virtually. yeah. Um, but it shows that when you push a writer out of their comfort zone, that how much they can then get reinvigorated and come up with something completely different and unique and uh, like an absolute classic.
0: Yeah, and the Daleks really barely in it, are they? That's the other thing. It's I think when you rewatch it, you um, you kind of in your memory, as you, you, well, I do anyway, sort of think of them as being in it more. Um, and then when you watch it, yeah, they're in it very, very little.
1: Well, I think that's that's probably a, a testament to the success of the story is that they're used very sparingly but when they are used, they are so effective. Yeah. That's I mean, the back on the Fowl uh, City when they come round the corner in the corridor and they see the people cheering because the Fowls think they've won the Thousand Year War and they just go, they screech exterminate. that, And that's the first time that you really see the Daleks do that. That has so, so much power.
0: Yeah. And it, cause it uses the audience's expectation. The audience know they're evil. They know to be scared of them. Um but the when they've just been invented, nobody knows this. So they, uh, it, it's that kind of growing menace as they they become self-aware and you know towards the end, and then and then destroy their creator. It's great.
1: And obviously, you know, I think David Maloney kind of like had learned his mistake from. I think he directed Planet of the Daleks. I think. Yeah. So think. he directed Dalek story previously. So he kind of like I think could realise that the best way to use them was to use them in that way quite sparingly use them from certain angles that made them look more effective i mean there's a great shot of i think the daleks going across the trenches and obviously it's a studio based shot because they didn't film it on location but it's done from an angle where from below so the dalek you're looking up at the dalek and it looks so much more imposing Mm. in that as it goes across, like, the battlefield, and I think that's that's, a great shot, and just shows how much David Maloney was a great director in that era of the show.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, of course, the other other really iconic bit from the story is the Do I Have the Right speech, isn't it? That's the... uh, um, I think probably when I was kind of younger and before I'd seen the story, I'd I'd seen that clip uh, on different stuff. There was... um, there was a documentary. Was it called? Is it called Behind the Sofa or something? And it was presented by the Anorak. Oh
1: was, yeah, um, that was when they started some repeats, didn't they, of Doctor
0: Who? Yeah, in the nineties. So I recorded that, and because there were so many clips on it of stories that I had yet to see, um, I watched it loads and loads of times. And I'm pretty sure that one's on there. The, um, the Do I Have the Right speech. So it was yeah before I'd seen the story on UK Gold or anything like that. Yeah. Well, I
1: think at the time, I think on UK Gold, I think because Terry Nation's estate are quite um, stringent with the rights of the Daleks. Yeah. Uh, that I think I don't think the Dalek stories ever got an airing much on UK Gold, did they?
0: Ah, right, or possibly not. No, it would. Um, it might have been VHS then. The first time I saw them. Yeah, There's and I know they like...
1: had recent problems again with the whole uh, recent classic marathon on Twitch, haven't they?
0: Yeah, is it the ones that that he didn't write? They want more money for or something as well. There's, there's some rule. Yeah, out there. apparently.
1: Yeah. Um, so it's if if you believe it. Um, but I think it's come from you know those people in the know. Uh, Terry Nation's estate have asked for the complete royalties for the stories that um, he
0: didn't write yeah. that featured the Daleks, which I think is a bit cheeky. Yeah. <laughs>
1: So that would mean that Eric Saywood and Ben Aronovich and Terence Sticks, because I believe they didn't show the Five Doctors as well because of the, the fact that there's a Dalek in it, yeah, um, right. would have to like, give up their complete royalties, which is a bit cheeky if you ask me. I think yeah. they've made enough money off the Daleks. Uh, they don't need to be that greedy.
0: No, absolutely. And that's a shame for the, the fans who are seeing these stories for the first time on Twitch, because uh, especially the Five Doctors, uh, missing out on that one is, uh, is a real shame.
1: It is and let's just talk about that obviously if they ever do a like a kind of marathon like that again, um, that they kinda of, like come to some kind of agreement but it would kinda of, like mean that um if they ever did a new series marathon on Twitch that they'd probably come across the same problem as well.
0: Yeah, and that would that would mean a lot of series finales and all sorts of missing, wouldn't it? Yeah, you
1: complete like miss. And leave huge gaps in the uh, continuity. Season one would be uh, completely like obliterated, wouldn't
0: it? Yeah, you'd you'd miss Eccleston's regeneration and everything. Yeah, uh, yeah. Because always the rumor, isn't there, that um, the the new series have only got the Daleks as long as they use them at least once every series.
1: Yeah. Or well, there's that, con- that that rumor as well that they have there's a contractual right that they have to use them every year. Yeah. And else they lose them, but. Uh, I believe Chris Chibnall has recently come out in an interview and said that there's no Daleks at all in this uh, or returning monsters in series 11 at all
0: yeah so it's either a fake out or they uh, they renegotiated the contract I guess or, or just ripped it up and they're going to do without them for a while
1: probably well to be quite honest I think you know sometimes when they pop up every single like series it does come a little bit repetitive
0: yeah yeah, when you think about some of the gaps they had in the classic series, um, there's this, uh, especially sort of from Evil of the Daleks, I think is the biggest gap, isn't it? Evil of, Evil of the Daleks today are the Daleks. Yeah, there's that's good... five years, isn't it? I yeah. Think. That's and then what? you've got a four-year gap from Genesis to Destiny, so, you know, and the show flourished, Yeah. I think,
1: so um, it kind of like releases it a bit from you know, the shackles of always having to have um, that iconic monster returning. You know, mm. There's plenty of other, if you want to, like, you know, wave, you know, fly on the crest of, like, nostalgia and stuff, there's plenty of other, like, you know, iconic monsters you can bring back or, you know, create your own. It's The show has always thrived on that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, and especially this sort of here we're talking about after season 12, there's no re- returning monsters is there I think I'm right in saying throughout the rest of the Hinchcliffe era
1: that's true yeah because yeah. uh, Philip Hinchcliffe does mention that one of the behind the sofa uh, um documentaries on the box set he says that he he was kind of like these stories for season 12 were commissioned before he was appointed yeah uh, Barry Letts and Terrence Dix were obviously knew they were leaving, but they were setting it up. They didn't know what kind of doctor they were having. And if they were going for, like you said earlier, an, an elder, more elderly doctor, then they thought that the safety cushion of having the Daleks return, the Sotarans return, and the Cybermen return would kind of like be that reassurance to viewers that they're still watching the same show. But ultimately, I don't think, you know. They needed it because proof in the pudding is that Tom Baker, like, just connected with the public yeah. straight up. I believe *Ark in Space* had some of the highest ratings it had had on TV since uh, William Hartnell's era.
0: Yeah, and I'm right saying um, Barry, let's cast Tom Baker as well, didn't he? So, he did, he him, did, a, yeah, did yeah. him a huge favour there. That's uh, <laughs> the best thing he could have done for them, I guess. Yeah, because I believe his preferred choice was uh, Fulton Mackay, who obviously is famous for
1: being in Porridge as the uh, chief prison officer, and yeah. obviously he'd appeared in, a in Doctor Who and the Silurians, had not he? Mm. As one of the scientists, and as much as you watch Porridge or see anything with Fulton Mackay in it, now you kind of like look at him. And you go, I don't see any Doctorish qualities in him at all. He's a very much a very straight
0: laced. Yeah. Um, who doesn't really kind of have any
1: kind of eccentricity to him.
0: No, he wouldn't have caught the public's imagination the way Tom Baker did. No, certainly oh, not. not. Certainly not. Yeah. So thank you very much uh, for your time this evening. It's been a pleasure discussing the LFCC and Season 12 with you, Jason.
1: It's been absolutely brilliant and thank you for inviting me back once again.
0: No problem. Uh, we'll have you back on soon. Uh, join me next week for episode 50 when I'll be talking about Stephen Moffat's novelisation of Day of the Doctor with Eric Stadnick.
1: Episode 50, wow <laughs>
0: I know, yeah, it's, uh, it's crept up on me a bit, it's weird yeah. It
1: has a bit, yeah I'll look forward to that because uh, I read that when it came out and I absolutely love that novel so I'm looking forward to that one.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's a cracking book isn't it? It's, uh, it a is A bit, bit of a spoiler but I, I loved it, yeah So <laughs> Thanks very much for listening and we'll see you then. Goodbye.